Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Carol Edgarian. Carol is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Three Stages of Amazement, and the international bestseller, Rise the Euphrates, winner of the ANC Freedom Prize. Her articles and essays have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, NPR, and W, among many others. She is co-founder of the nonprofit Narrative, a leading digital publisher of fiction, poetry, and art, and Narrative in the Schools, which provides reading and writing resources to teachers and students around the world. She's also written for the screen, is developing a limited series for Three Stages of Amazement, teaches fiction, and is a frequent speaker at speaking events around the world on the art story. Her upcoming novel, Vera, is being released through Scribner on March 2nd, 2021. Carol? We're very excited to have you on the show today. That is a very impressive bio. Thank you. I'm doing well, and I'm so glad to be here with you. A wonderful way to start the day. We had talked before we started recording this podcast about how days, these days, you know, it's hard to know what day it is. Quarantine and all that. Where are you in the world, and how has this quarantine life affected you? I'm in San Francisco, and... You know, truly, these days, I think we're all aging in dog years. I've never had a time where I I literally don't know what day it is or what week it is. And you have to look at the calendar. You know, it's been such a time. It's been such a time. And in San Francisco, we were one of the first places to shelter in place. So here we are, you know, 10 months later, and, and we're sheltering in place. You know, we're not seeing anyone. And in some ways, it's the perfect moment for writing and writers because we just keep on doing what we're doing in our caves. But it's been, it's been really hard to see, to see all the difficulty and to feel all the difficulty. And I have three grown daughters and two of them have come back home since March and to see their lives so disrupted. And you know, I have a mother who lives in Southern California, and I haven't seen her in almost a year. You know, we're all, we're all going through this, and I feel very fortunate that no one in my immediate family has gotten COVID, and very fortunate that I have a house and I have food on the table. So feeling very, very lucky. I definitely want to get into your process behind Vera, but while we're talking about the current situation, obviously you wrote about an earth-shattering kind of cataclysmic event in this book about the 1906 earthquake. Are there similarities? I know they're different kind of things, but are there similarities you're seeing after writing that book and going through this pandemic? Well, it's interesting because one of the reasons I chose the 1906 San Francisco earthquake was I was really interested in exploring this notion of in an apocalypse, who and what rises. 
you know, and particularly when you have a corrupt society. In 1906, the mayor, the board of supervisors, the sheriff were all being run by a party boss. And in fact, on the morning of the 1906 quake, the mayor, Eugene Schmitz, was about to be indicted for graft. So the parallels between then and now seem are sort of stunning. You know, we're living in a moment of upheaval and reckoning when societal norms have been ripped down, when there is unprecedented corruption and division between the haves and the have-nots. And that has absolute parallels to 1906. Of course, I couldn't have predicted this. I started working on this book more than six years ago, just really beginning with the research on the earthquake and pre-Trump. But as I've gotten deeper and deeper in the writing, it just, it seems that the parallels just (laughs) have become stunning as the days pass. That can't be predicted, you know, especially if you're writing historical fiction, you're writing of another time in a particular time of the writing, but of course you're read in an entirely different moment, a moment that you can't predict. Still in regards to the pandemic and the quarantine and everything, for those writers listening, you know, you mentioned earlier that we're briefly touched on how writers are already at home writing. So some might not be affected, but obviously a lot are affected emotionally and maybe are having trouble, you know, finding inspiration and getting writer's block, these kind of things, being stuck at home all the time. Do you have any suggestions for those writers who are listening who are maybe feeling those things? Well, I think I'd say a couple things. One, in the darkness, art is always the light that comes out of the darkness. And this is a moment, if you look historically, it's in moments such as this that great art gets made. And I think we're going to see an amazing flourishing of writing coming out of the pandemic and the Trump era that is not necessarily specifically tied to it, but that in some way is inspired by it. I think I know when I'm stuck in the work, and I'm often stuck, I just, one thing I have to say to myself is, okay, if I'm hitting a wall in a given day, I have to put the time in. I often go to read something that will give me a kick into the language. I usually begin my day reading some poetry, or I reread something that really moves me. And often it's just a scene. So that kind of tricks my mind into already thinking about drama, already thinking about scene. But I also tell myself, if I'm really in a sort of hitting a wall, I say, okay, today doesn't count. I think it's really important in the drafting to allow, sort of have that beginner's mindset, that mindset of play, so that you let the imagination go where it will go. It's in the revision that you really really have to be sort of the hard-ass judge. But in the drafting, you have to allow yourself to play. You have to allow yourself to open all the valves and see what comes. Love that. Before we get into process, I would love to hear your origin story. How did you get into being a writer? You've obviously done a lot of things. You're also an editor of narrative. And you've written for the screen. And you've done all these amazing things. So how did you you know, get into all this? And how did it all kind of unfold? I was always 
and I think this is true for so many writers, but I was always that kid, you know, reading late into the night, reading, reading really to save my life. And I started writing poetry and stories when I was very young. I won a writing contest when I was 12. And it was, I still remember, you know, the title of the story was Like All Things. And it had, you know, it was sort of life and death. And, you know, I was, I guess I was a pretty serious kid. But I, I never gave myself the label of quote, writer. I just, it was something that I did. And certainly, I read everything I could get my hands on. And I didn't, my parents were not great readers, but they didn't stop me from getting, getting my hands on books. They brought me to the library and I just would bring stacks home. So I read without any notion of the good books or the more commercial books or even the trashy books. I read broadly. And I grew up on the East Coast, and I came West to go to Stanford, much against my parents' wishes. You know, they, they said, why would anybody go to the West Coast to go to college when everyone knows the best schools are on the East Coast? And I said, I'm gonna, I want to go to California. I was drawn to this sense of sort of new horizons out here and promised that I'd be back in four years. And, you know, that was more than three decades ago. And at Stanford, I had an amazing mentor and started my first novel as my senior thesis. Had about 75 pages when I graduated. And the day after I graduated, I realized, you know, I had to get a job. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any way to support myself. And I went down the street to this PR firm that had been started by a fellow poetry major. And it was the first high-tech PR firm in Silicon Valley. One of the first, there was another one, actually, that was larger. And I had no credentials other than I thought, you know, I could write something. And I started there. And this was in 1984. And, you know, Bill Gates was a client. And a lot of the guys who were backing just really nascent Silicon Valley stuff. And I wrote everything from speeches to press releases to technical manuals and did that for about a year with those 75 pages haunting me, but stuck in a drawer because I was working 60, 70 hour weeks. It was, it was a wild time to be, to be really on the front lines of this whole new world burgeoning. And I left within a year and took a few clients on my own and for you know my 20s wrote you know was a was a gun for hire writing everything and a lot of speeches and a lot of technical stuff and non-technical stuff it's actually great training for a novelist to come in to an entirely new world to learn the world and more specifically learn the language of the world you know what did i know about chemical catalysts or semiconductors. Didn't know anything about them, but I could adopt the speech. I could adopt the specifics. So it took me through my 20s of having to support myself doing freelance stuff to get that first novel written. And I finished Rise Euphrates when I was 30 and sent it off to a few agents. And one agent read it, called me. It was one of those it was one of those 
those moments, 7 a.m., my phone rings. And this agent said, well, whoever else you sent this to, tell them you've got an agent and I'll be back. And literally three or four days later, Rise of the Euphrates sold to Random House. And there we go. And that was that novel, its beginning roots were research I had done in high school and then college about the Armenian genocide. I'm Armenian, but I, I really sort of went down the rabbit hole of really learning the roots of the genocide and what happened to people during the genocide. And then really looking at it in the novel in terms of how it affected three generations of Americans, the first generation having survived it. So Rise came out and I was working, you know, I was teaching. I was working on a new book. In 2003, my husband, Tom Jenks, and I started Narrative. And this was a moment, really, the Wild West period of the web when really no, no magazines were online. The New Yorker wasn't online. The New York Times wasn't online. And we had this notion of starting starting an online magazine that was dedicated, really, two things. One, to support writers in the digital age by paying them well and publishing them well. And secondly, to support reading by making everything we publish free. So that has been consistent in the 17 years since then. So we started with six pieces of fiction. We called up some of our friends. Tobias Wolf gave us a piece. Joyce Carol Oates gave us a piece. Jane Smiley gave us a piece. And three newcomers. And didn't have any readers. Fast forward to today, you know, we've published thousands of both poetry, fiction, nonfiction, you know, read all over the world. And we can talk more about that. But that was something we began. And I really had no idea how much of a labor of love it would be and how time consuming, but always writing, always teaching, raising kids. Three Stages of Amazement came out in 2011, also based on a pivotal moment in time, in this case, the 2008 economic bust. And with some antecedent to my work at Silicon Valley, we can talk about that. And, you know, today, Vera coming out. I've been working on this book for about six years, and all this time also running Narrative and Narrative in the Schools, which is a project that really supports teachers and students in schools around the world, giving them libraries, a free library, and reading and writing tools, because particularly in underserved schools around the world, teachers need to get their hands on reading, and they too often don't have the funds to buy books. Carol, with Vera coming out, I would love to begin exploring your process for writing Vera. Particularly, maybe we could frame it as how to write a historical fiction novel using Vera as an example. Does that work for you? Is that cool? That would be great. Now, I want to read the description of Vera. Are you cool with me doing my worst? Great. Yeah, go, go, go. <laughs> go, dog, um, go. So here it is. Here it is. San Francisco, 1906. City is on fire and reeling from the earthquake. 15-year-old Vera Johnson 
the illegitimate daughter of the notorious proprietor of the city's Rizzius Bordello, an ally to the city's corrupt politicians, has spent her whole life looking for an adult to show her how to behave. In this beautiful novel, she learns that no such adult is forthcoming and must decide for herself how to be in the world. In the aftermath, as Vera allies with Tan, her former rival, and forges a new kind of family, and her distaste for old societal norms and prejudices move her to action. As we've recently observed, those with moral courage have the power to change the rules in a catastrophe. And then I have some quotes. There's a bunch. A novel of resilience in the face of disaster, just what we need right about now. Carol Edgarian's tale couldn't have come at a better time. That's from T.C. Boyle. Part survival story, part story of a young woman's quest for love. This richly plotted historical novel is brilliantly conceived and beautifully realized. That's from Booklist, Starred Review, and then Sisters, Mothers, Heroines, Charlatans, Criminals, Buffoons, Scam Artists, Prostitutes, and the Uncontrollable Passionate Brawn of a Young Nation. In Vera, we see, taste, smell, the marrow of a country intoxicated on hope, all evidence to the contrary. Amazingly, Edgarian has captured a rolling, earnest, and perpetual ruin so complex it could just be called life. She's conjured another wonderful novel out of dust, history, and love. That's a quote from Rick Bass. How do you feel getting these amazing quotes? Publishers Weekly, I know, has another one. There's so many amazing quotes. How do you feel with this book coming up? Where are you at with it before we get into the actual process? Oh, it's so rewarding to hear from you know my peers how the book works on their imaginations. Does the book work? Does it talk to them? You know, there's this, this thing about publishing, you finish the book and there's this lag time before it goes out in the world and you get the first indications, you get the first responses back. And to know that these writers, whom I respect so much, were moved or enjoyed the book is just huge. It's huge. And it, it gives you some armor when the book actually goes out into the world. And it falls into readers' hands, and it's no longer mine. It's theirs. It's the world's. So it becomes something else. My first question in regards to the actual writing process, we always start with inception. How do you come up with ideas? You have written historical fiction before. In this case, where do you come up with the idea? How do you decide that writing about the 1906 earthquake or during that time, how does that idea stick? I love that you use the word decide, and I'm not sure that's actually the word for me. I think my material finds me in some way. I began collecting books on the earthquake 25, 30 years ago, and I had a whole shelf of them, and I would read them and sort of think about them and then put them on the shelf and let them sort of talk to each other and talk to me. Interestingly, on a shelf just above political books that I'm thinking about and below political things. And didn't know I was ever going to write about the quake. Didn't know that would be something that would come back to me in terms of fiction. But I had this idea that I wanted to write about an apocalypse. I wanted to write about a catastrophe that leveled society. I was thinking a lot about the structure of society and what is unfair in society, how we get put into boxes, particularly women particularly people of color, particularly those who are seen as other than the the central movers and shakers. And so that was working on me. 
I'm always looking for these moments in my work where the political, the societal collides with a character's desire for self-invention or reinvention. That's interesting to me because, of course, the driver in fiction is always desire. You know, characters don't want things the way normal people do. They want things with an urgency. They've got to have this central thing that they desire. And so I always know when I have a group of characters, when I know what they want, and therefore I know what makes them vulnerable. And so suddenly, as I was thinking about my next book, I returned to the earthquake. And of course, people think of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake as the quake. But in fact, what was more devastating than the quake was the three days, almost four days of fire that really leveled the city. 28,000 buildings burned, 500 city blocks. They say the sort of official record is that only 3,000 dead, but anyone who really has thought about that time and researched that time, there were many, many more dead. But 250,000 people in the city of San Francisco were homeless. Just think about that in 1906, coming out of the fire. So that is that's a landscape, that's a moment of shock, of collapse, of surviving. But also interesting to me was who and what comes out of that. And is that a moment, particularly for a character who began the quake on the margins in many ways, housed, but in many ways without a family, provided for, but is unloved? is smart, irreverent, somewhat unpleasing girl of 15 in 1906, when that is absolutely what you cannot be in 1906. And somebody who thinks outside the box, who doesn't view people based on societal norms, because she is, in fact, the bastard child of the most prominent madam in 1906, but instead views people by their character by who and what they believe in. So all these things started to come into play, and then other characters came toward me. But going back to the research, and I researched for about two years, two and a half, I kept researching. But I didn't know that beyond this earthquake and fire, there was a whole level of political corruption. There was a whole level of people scamming. And these real characters became more and more vivid to me. So in Vera, there is the whole fictional world of characters, but they intersect with real folks. You know, Vera comes to know the mayor, Eugene Schmitz. She comes to know Alma de Bretville, who was sort of the leading doyen at the time. And she gets to move in and out of this world. The night before the earthquake, Caruso came to sing in San Francisco. And it was a huge deal because San Francisco was still sort of rough and tumble. It was a city founded by miners. And, you know, all the things that miners looked to supporting. Prostitution was huge in early San Francisco and continued to be something that was, if not revered, something that was prominent. And long before San Francisco had roads and a police force, it had this mercantile entrepreneurial aspect. 
And that is just central to the city's DNA. So I, the deeper and deeper I got, I wanted to both celebrate and look at that, look at the hubris and also look at that, that possibility of how the city just always is a little bit renegade, always is going for it, always is too expensive. And what's the downside of that? What is the shadow side of that? We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. You mentioned the research that goes into writing historical fiction, but how do you find balance between the history and creating your own fictional story? How do you honor the timelines without leaning too much into it being a timeline of events, so to speak? I research, I research every granular aspect, and I go where my interest takes me. I go where I think there's nexus of story, but really I'm just plowing through. And I trick my mind to remember what is going to be important for the story. So I go down a lot of rabbit holes, and I fill my head with all this fact, all this stuff. And then I let it fall away. So really, all that's left are breadcrumbs of stories, breadcrumbs of history, if you will. And from those breadcrumbs, I build a world. And I don't always know what I'm going to take, what I'm going to use. I think your point that's so important is it cannot read like like a history book. It has to read with the characters and the story being the thing that's most forward. And you know, whether it's a historical novel or any kind of novel, for me, it has to feel, or I want readers to feel like this is news of today. I want it to feel like it's happening now. So the voice of the book is very modern. It's urgent. It's not, you know, in ye old times. I think that as much as we have evolved over time, the human animal is fairly consistent. So we're pulling from an earlier time, but I hope it speaks to this time. And that's always in my mind. You mentioned character earlier. You mentioned their desire and what makes them vulnerable. 
at what point in the process of, you know, you mentioned you have your books and that the idea starts to come to you. At what point are you starting to think about those characters and how concise of an effort do you spend locking down? Okay, these are the characters, these are their stories. What does that process specifically look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I know I have I have a central character when, you know, going back to what I said earlier, when I know what their desire is. And for me, you know, this main character, Vera, I knew I had her when I wrote the line, all my life I was looking for a catastrophe greater than my birth. And, you know, there are pivotal moments, pivotal lines. But that said, and I do outline, I outline scrupulously, and then I toss the outline over my shoulder or make battlefield decisions that have absolutely nothing to do with the outline. But it's good to outline. And then and then, and then, and then to have that pace of the story that one thing follows the next, necessarily follows the next. But characters are always surprising. And at a certain point in the writing, and this is when it gets so both fun and interesting, is when they take a turn, they're so real to you that they take a turn that you didn't expect and you have to be smart enough to follow them. And You know, one character in this book that really surprised me, who kept growing, was the character of Tan, who is a Chinese servant in 1906, who knows about wines. He's an amazing chef. He is, he speaks perfect English. He has a kind of sophistication. Yet, because he is Chinese in 1906, he lives in a basement of a grand house on a dirt floor. And that discrepancy, that level of, of unfairness, makes him angry. And it makes him angry in ways that he sees himself as someone worthy of, worthy of more. And he has a great pride about him. And he clashes with Vera in the beginning. Yet after the quake, they come together and they come to recognize each other as kindred spirits and more importantly, as worthy partners. And it's from Tan that Vera learns some essential lessons about what it is to have a family, what it is to, to love a child, all those things that she, she lacks. And they teach each other along the way as they are rivals and as they kind of battle, they engage in a battle of wills. I didn't know he would be essential to the story when I started out, but he became more and more interesting to me. And, you know, this idea of characters being in boxes, preordained boxes, watching them bust out, giving them the kind of fodder, the kind of dramatic tension that allows them to do things and do things that are unexpected and both entertaining and surprising to the reader. You know, I, I always look for ways to show, can I show a character in his or her fullness? Can I show him or her in her wrong rightness? You know, characters characters don't always behave as they ought to, both for their own well-being and for what is correct. And that is interesting. That is really interesting. It's interesting to me when they do foolish things and the foolishness gets them into trouble and we have to get them out of trouble. You know, I was thinking about the 
the fire, the earthquake. And this is a small moment that happened that I wrote a little bit about was, you know, the quake happened. People were standing outside of their homes, their broken homes. And because of the hilliness of San Francisco, they couldn't really see, well, is this just my street or what happened on the hill beyond me? What is this? And of course, the quake happened at five, five o'clock in the morning. So it's still dark. It's April. You know, the sun hasn't come up yet. You are just shell-shocked. And there was a mother in Noe Valley whose chimney was busted in half, house was broken, who had young children. And she did something very practical and very foolish. She decided to make her kids breakfast at her broken chimney. Well, that breakfast set that whole part of town on fire. It came to be known as the Ham and Eggs Fire, and it devastated a huge swath of the town. But you can imagine in that moment doing that, just at least I'm going to feed my kids. Who knows where the next meal comes from, right? You mentioned that you want to feel like the story is happening now. In regards to themes, are themes for you tangible? things? Do you sit down and say, you know, the theme of this before I write, this is something I want to say. This is the theme that I want to be. Or did the themes kind of happen more organically? The themes happen more organically. I wouldn't say I'm driven by theme. I'm driven by character. I want to know what happens. I want to know how this character evolves and changes. And we're always looking for connection. I mean, that to me is, is what is central. In, in a novel, in a story, is how, how certain characters strive for what they want and where they come up against some, some other character with an opposing desire and where those combustions happen, where those connections happen. Where is the possibility of coming together and where do they often miss? I mean, it's the missing, it's the thwarting that is so oddly rewarding in the reading experience, right? So no, I'm always looking, you know, in this book, I think one thing you could say is all the characters are looking for home, whatever home looks like for them. And it's really different for everyone. They have ambition. I'm drawn to characters who are in movement, who want, who have grand ambitions for themselves. That doesn't mean they get they get rewarded necessarily, but they, they're on a track. They're wanting something bigger from life. I think that's so centrally central to the American story. And that's always something that's, that's driving me. And again, news of the day. You know, it can't ever feel quaint or, you know, in, in my work, people are are not just sitting in rooms having their thoughts. They're out there doing things. I think that's interesting. Something that is odd, I think, in my writing process, but seems to hold true, you know, these all these books later, is when I begin writing, I will seize on a first scene and I'll revise and revise and revise until I have that first scene. Oddly, in these three books, that first scene becomes the end of the book. And I don't know that at the time, but it becomes the place 
I want to get to, the place where things resolve. And I don't know necessarily how I'm going to get there. I have to just, you know, I have to cross the river stone by stone by stone. But it becomes the focal point of what I'm driving toward. You just mentioned crossing the river stone by stone. A higher level, when you are working on the book itself, can you break down, you mentioned your outline, but when you're actually in the writing process itself, are you working chapter by chapter? Are you revising chapter by chapter? Are you writing each chapter, then going back and then doing a pass? Walk us through kind of how you project manage, so to speak, that process of getting through a book. I absolutely go chapter by chapter. I suppose I'm more of a 19th century writer in the sense that I really am looking for full scenes, full, complete chapters. And I'll rewrite and rewrite and rewrite to the point where it's polished enough that I feel I can go on. But as I'm polishing a given chapter, I'm already launching ahead. It's giving me ideas of where I'm going to go next and next and next. And if I get frustrated in a given chapter, I'll move forward. Then I'll come back. I'll move way forward, then come back. Not to say when I get to an end point, and it might be the first half of the book, I'll pause and reread and see that it's all a mess and that as the book has evolved, I need to go back and rework and hone. And then, of course, I get to a draft and it's baggy and there are places that are repetitive. And I start to take the scalpel to those. And there's many drafts, many whole drafts that come from that. And characters who I think are going to go the distance, I realize they're replicating the same effect as another character or they've become less interesting. Or rather than heightening the sense of drama and urgency, they dampen it. In the revision process, at a certain point, all I'm looking for is the reader's interest. What becomes much more my focus is the reader's experience as the reader goes through. And I have to make those decisions. And it gets easier the more you do it. But you make those battlefield decisions where you kill your proverbial darlings. And it's just, oh, you know, or something that took you, you know, three months to work on has to go. And I remember when I was first starting out and for years, I mean, that was just a death to me. And now there's a kind of pleasure, like out of here, out of here, you know, you you're not doing the work you need to do, gone. And that's really evolved. But many, 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 many drafts, a ridiculous number of drafts for me in minor tweaks, in minor and major ways. But always the shape, the shape comes to me, I would say, fairly early of what is the arc. And in this case, Vera, the actual arc of the book, is a year, a year in the life of San Francisco that corresponds with the time before the quake, 10 days before the quake, where really the whole world of San Francisco is set and ends with the corruption trial of the mayor. And then there's a kind of coda 
of Vera, who is much older, and what happened in her life. But that's, that's the basic drama of the book. And that was interesting to me. Interesting to me, this mayor who was sentenced to San Quentin and got off because the evidence, they couldn't find the money trail. And I came across, I don't want to blow the tension of the book in any way or what happens toward the end, but I came across this little clip that the mayor, who had been a violinist, I mean, he wasn't a political in any way. He was a violinist. He ran a local orchestra. He was good looking. He had a great head of hair. And so this guy, Abruff, who ran the town, put him in the mayoral seat because he was, he was easily manipulated and was a guy who didn't mind, you know, didn't mind benefiting from the graft that was so ugh, rampant in those times. So I came across this little clip that it was found in his house, a floorboard, a loose floorboard, and there was a vault for where he stored his best violins. And it was a clip like an inch big. But that was one of those breadcrumbs, going back to your earlier question, was one of those breadcrumbs that I thought, huh, what else would you store under a floorboard if it wasn't a violin? Love that. Carol, a few quick bonus questions before we wrap up. We usually call them a series of seemingly random questions. Are you ready to rock and roll? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fire away. First one, how do you balance what you do? Obviously, you work on narrative and you write novels and books and scripts and all of these kind of things. So how do you find the balance in your life to work on all that? Yeah. Balance. Isn't that a word? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, particularly for women raising kids and working and creating. I don't know anybody who's got that figured out. Every day it's different. In leading narrative, I'm easily could work 60-hour weeks. You know, because we're digital, it's a 24-7 kind of thing. Thank goodness we have so many hands helping, working, creating it. But every day, there are lists and lists and things I could never possibly do in a day or night. And on top of that, there's the writing. And what I do is I don't sleep as much as I'd like to. And the writing comes first. It comes early in the morning. And then there are days, though, that are just purely narrative days. There are days that are purely writing days, but it's a seven-day week. It's not a five-day week. And then there's my family. and. I don't think balance is the goal. I think feeling creative, feeling like I'm doing, I'm doing some good for fellow artists and writers and also serving my characters. I find if I go too long without writing, I'm not a happy camper. So it's writing every day, something every single day. Love that. The next bonus question. If you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose? Which restaurant and why? <laughs> it's such a great question. If we're talking food, if we're talking a meal, I think it would have to be James Salter, who passed some years ago, but was a great friend and one of the most entertaining, 
amazing dinner companions ever. So I would take him to the galley takeout in Menemsha and we would get we would get some kind of fish sandwich and we'd go sit on the rocks and just talk 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 story of that the last question if you could choose one learning or insight from your entire career to pass along to those writers listening right now what's the one thing you would say that writing is about generosity that you draft for the story but you revise for the reader and that when you're telling a story you're taking a reader by the hand and saying you know, I know there's all that TV, there's all those other stuff you could be doing. Come with me. I'm going to take you by the hand. I'm not going to let go. And we're going to go on a really interesting journey. And you're going to have a great time. So it's about generosity. It's about gifts to the reader. How many gifts can you give the reader? Love that. Well, very, very last question. And the most important one. Did you have fun talking to us today? I feel like there were a lot of gems in here. So I had Oh, fun. I'm so Did glad. Did you have fun? I had a great time. I had a great Amazing. time. And it, it's so good to be with you. And kudos to you. I love what you're doing. And talking story. There's nothing better. There's nothing better. Vera is being released through Scrivener on March 2nd, 2021. Carol, did you want to plug anything else? Any upcoming projects? Any websites? Social media? Twitter? Anything you want to shout out? Please, <laughs> please join me. On and something we didn't talk about, but every Tuesday on my Instagram, C Edgarian, my first initial Edgarian, all one, all one word. I'm doing a short bit called a word, please, where I take a word and I take it apart from its origins and usually write a little something or read a little something to it. And it's, it's for all those wordy folks and story lovers. It's really fun. And also, I hope you enjoy Vera. If you're listening, please check out Vera. Carol, thank you so much again for your insights, thank your time, you. the gems. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Really fun. Right. Thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.